to Genesis 25. We're finishing up that chapter this morning. First book of the Bible, 25. <laughs> Getting into Isaac's line now. We're going to start in verse 19, and we're going to go to verse 34. Let's stand together for the reading of God's authoritative word. Hear God's word to you this morning. This is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethel, the Aramean, from Badam Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out, with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man, staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. This is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, First sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Thus ends the reading. God's holy and errant word may bless our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. My brothers and sisters in Christ, from the very first chapters of this great book of Genesis, beginnings, we've seen a very powerful truth that's been emphasized again and again, so much so that even a child should be able to see this. And it's been stated in a number of ways, but let me put it the simplest way that I know how in the English language. God is God. That's pretty much it in a nutshell. That's right. Very good. That's the implication. 
Another way of saying it, a little more complicated, a little deeper for some of us, is that God displays his infinite wisdom. Listen to this one. I had to take time to write this one down. God displays his infinite wisdom, power, goodness, and glory by not giving some sinners what they deserve, but rather saving them by his sovereign grace and by displaying his righteous justice by giving others the punishment their sins deserve. That's a mouthful. In other words, in God's great wisdom and in his great justice, in his great goodness and in his good grace, he has so chosen to save a people from himself from within the larger population of which are all sinners. And he magnifies himself when he gives us also, when he gives those others what they deserve. So the point is, God is just. Now, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, even to me, you deserve it. When something good happens, you, know, you ever hear that? Or she deserves it. But there's one problem with that. There's one thing we all deserve. You know, when people say, I want justice, I cringe when you ultimately say that. Because justice for all literally means hell for all. Because there is something we've earned from God. And that's his justice. But we've seen it throughout Genesis. So like this chapter shouldn't be this great shock to the system. Because think about it. We've seen it in the lives of who? Abel. Remember? There's Cain and Abel, but Abel was the righteous one. We've seen it in the life of Seth. God replaced Abel when he died. We saw Enoch walk with God and then was no more. God chose him. We saw Noah out of everybody in the whole world. The whole world had been completely, exceedingly wicked, and God chose by his grace Noah and his family to save in the ark. What happened to the rest? They got what they deserved. They got justice. God was not at fault. They were. Then, of course, we saw God started again with Abraham. That's what we've been spending many weeks on. How God called Abraham from paganism, worshiping false gods. And he called him by his grace, purely out of his mercy, and said, no, 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 no. You're going to be mine. And through you, I'm going to bless all nations. And I'm going to make a great nation out of you, Abraham. And then, of course, here we have Isaac, the son of the promise. The one born miraculously by the grace of God as a gift. So God would continue to keep his promise to save his, yeah, here's the word, elect. That's what we see here. God in his grace moving powerfully to redeem a people to be his very own, choosing to show them mercy and compassion. Now, Lord willing, someday we're going to get to preach through the book of Exodus. That's going to be a little bit down the line. But if you remember, um, Paul quotes this later. What does God say to, to, to uh, Moses, another one of his servants he chose? I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So let's rewind the tape in the sermon already. What, what is God saying? I'm God. You're not. I owe no man anything. Now, here's the thing. The really exciting thing for any humble student of God's word, any true disciple of Jesus, is not only that these verses that we're going to look at this morning teach that awesome truth that salvation is a gracious gift of a sovereign, good God. 
and it's his choice. But listen, here's the neat thing that I saw as I really looked into it. It also addresses a few misconceptions concerning this heavy, deep teaching of God's word. We're going to see there's two questions people normally ask once the Bible tells us God is sovereign. If God is sovereign, and he so order things according to his will, then what's the question? Why pray? You ever hear that one? Why should we pray? If God's going to do what he's going to do anyway. You already kind of hear a little attitude there, don't you? Just saying. The second question is, well, if God's sovereign, then what about man's responsibility? That it doesn't matter what we do. And we're going to see this exact passage addresses those two questions as well, which was exciting to me to see that right in the same passage. So we don't have to do too much of a paper chase all over the Bible. It's right here in God's word. And let me just say this, and we'll jump right into it. As a preacher... And a pastor called to expound the word of God. It's the job of pastors to bring forth both the milk, the pure milk of the word, for those who are just coming to know Christ, they're babes in Christ, they need to grow just like a baby needs to grow, on milk, not solid food. You with me? However, after we've known the Lord for a while, we can't just live on milk. We need the meat of the word. And so this morning, with no apology, I will certainly make sure there's enough milk for any of us out here who are young in the Lord, but there's going to be plenty of meat that I need to, to feed you uh, this morning. So this is what we're going to see, that although salvation is a free gift of God's sovereign, gracious choice, it doesn't remove our responsibility to pray and our responsibility to trust and obey. See that? I even got it to rhyme. So that's what it is. Even though salvation is a free gift of God's sovereign, gracious choice, it doesn't remove our responsibility to pray and to trust and to obey. So let's take a look at the first one. It's the first principle of, of the other two flow out of. So we're just going to take a few moments on this. Salvation is a free gift of God's sovereign, gracious choice. And I phrased it that way on purpose. So in other words, this is important. If anyone is saved from their sin, and from the punishment that their sins deserve. If they've been freely accepted as a full-fledged child of the living God. If they've given, been given a place in the eternal kingdom that will never perish or fade. It is solely a gift of God's sovereign, gracious choice. When the Apostle Paul is dealing with world evangelization in Romans 9. He's talking about um, the gospel going out everywhere. And he's answering an objection. Listen, it's important to understand this context before I give you a quote from the verse. So we're not just cherry-picking verses. What's going on in Romans 9, and then I'll show you why I'm quoting it. What's going on in Romans 9, people are saying to Paul, if Jesus is the Messiah coming from the Jews, then why is it that only a minority of the Jews are receiving him? How come the majority, it seems, of the Jewish nation is rejecting the Christ, if he really is, if Jesus is supposedly the Christ. This is the objection. And Paul's objection is this. Not all Israel are Israel. In other words, even in the Old Testament, it wasn't the larger, everybody that was biologically connected to Abraham that were real Jews. Remember, we've been dealing with this throughout the whole time in Genesis. But it's only those who are of the promise. In other words, those who have faith, who are the real spiritual children of Abraham. And so Paul is arguing from that perspective 
And it's then that he goes to quote from this very, very verse in Genesis chapter 23, uh, verse 23. If you remember, it tells us that the twins in her womb were, were jostling one another. And she was like, what in the world is going on in here? This isn't the normal, hey, you want to feel a little bump. This, she knew there was like, you know, a world war or something going on. So she inquired of the Lord. And this is what the Lord told her. Two nations are in your womb. And two peoples within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. And the older will serve the younger. Now, the astonishing thing about this is that God is clearly saying to Rebecca, and this would be marvelous in her eyes, that he is going to reverse the natural order of things. Normally, the firstborn gets the double share of the inheritance. Normally, the firstborn, he is the one that carries on the name and through whom the family line would continue. But here, God does something strange. He says, which he will repeat again and again throughout the Bible to prove this point. He says the older will serve the younger. Now, why would he do such a thing? God, that is. It's because he wanted to make it abundantly clear that no one is saved by the earthly position. No one is saved by human effort or human strength or works done in our own righteousness. But salvation is a gift of God's grace and of God's grace alone. Leupold puts it this way. Every natural advantage of the carnal man is of no account in God's sight in the matter of salvation. Now we saw it already in the birth of Isaac, the son of the promise. And now we're going to see it even more clearly with Jacob and Esau because they had the same mom and dad. Right? With Isaac and with Ishmael, it was a different mom. Remember that? But in this one, same mom, same dad. Twins. So now this is where I want you to just turn with me quickly to Romans 9. And then, then we're going to do a little preaching here. Romans 9, verse 10. Paul says this. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So why did God tell Rebekah, the older will serve the younger? Here, Paul's going to tell us why. According to the word of God, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. Now look, there's a couple more moments on this because we need to just, before we, we jump into the other things, it's very important for us to understand this. This is not a doctrine to be feared, to shy away from, to be embarrassed about. It's a glorious truth. We're saved. Listen, we all are, we joyfully say we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace. Amen. Well, if that's the truth, then we have to trace that all the way back to say, well, then why did God pick me? Ever think that? Well, we know this. It wasn't nothing good in me. 
He didn't say, oh, that Santa, he's going to be ripping. I, I need to have him on my team. I'll be missing out. No, just the opposite. He saw that I had sinned greatly, wasted any potential I would have possibly had, and that actually to attach his name to my name would be a real risky thing. Rut rut. Why did he do it? Because of his sovereign, gracious love. Because he wanted to. Because we hear so many people, what about the free will of man? Listen, brothers and sisters, what about the free will of God? He's the creator and owner of the universe. He should be able to do with his creation what he wants to do. And the Bible says he does. But listen, this is really cool. What's God's purpose in electing, to, electing some to eternal life by his grace? What's the purpose? I'll tell you the purpose. It's so that all glory, honor, worship, and praise for man's salvation will go to him and him alone whom it right, rightfully belongs to. Look, here's the thing. You want to get down, you want to get real. No one in the new heavens and in the new earth will be able to boast that they got themselves there. The good news about heaven is there's no pride. There's nobody walking around like a peacock. Like so often we see in this world. There's no self-righteous, pompous glorying in sinful man's abilities and man's merits and man's deservings. Only what? The humble, joyful, exuberant praise of unworthy sinners saved by a sovereign, powerful, good, gracious, and just God. And that's why you get in Revelation, worthy, worthy, worthy are those who chose Jesus? No. Is the lamb who was slain. That's who's worthy. You want to attribute worth to something? It's him. And that's why we can actually say this, this, this statement and mean it with all our hearts, and it's 100% true. Jesus saves Sounds simple, right? But it's, it's really profound. It goes a lot deeper than, than, you know, a child can understand it, but us adults, it, go, it runs deep. Jesus saves. Not man. Someone once wrote this, and I have to track down who wrote this because I love this, this statement. As we paid nothing for God's eternal love and nothing for the son of his love and nothing for his spirit and our grace and faith, Nothing for our eternal rest. What an astonishing thought it will be to think of the unmeasurable difference between our deservings and our receivings. Now listen, I love this line. Oh, how free was all this love, and how free is this enjoyed glory. So then, let deserved be written on the floor of hell, but on the door of heaven and life, the free gift. Isn't that powerful? Deserved, but here, free gift. That's what God's purpose in election is, and that's why it might stand, that he alone will get the glory for the salvation of men, women, and children from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's teaching of Scripture. Now it's time to get out of the heavens and come back down to earth. Personally, I could glory in that forever. And hopefully I will. 
But the text also addresses those two misunderstandings or misapplications of this incredible biblical truth of God's sovereign choice. And the first, first one of those, we're doing two, is that if God is sovereign, why pray? And that's the second thing we see. Salvation by God's sovereign, gracious choice doesn't remove our responsibility to pray. Look at verse 21. One verse tells us this. One verse. It's powerful. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. Now you need to understand something. We've seen this before, haven't we? Right? A lot of we've seen this before. God is, is a God of order and he repeats things. And I think a lot of it is because our head is so thick. It doesn't get through. Sarah, too, was barren for many years after God promised her and Abraham a son through whom he would bless the nation, the promised son. And in their case, it was 30 years, if you remember, before the promise came true. Well, like his mom and his dad before him, Isaac and Rebekah, listen to this. It was 20 years down the road, they were promised that it would be through them, just like it was through Abraham, now it would be through Isaac, that the seed would be reckoned, the promised Messiah would come from that line, the nations would be blessed to their line. It's 20 years later, and guess what? No child. That's a long time. But here's what stood out to me, and maybe as you read it, it kind of hit you too. Isaac's response to this was very different than Abraham and Sarah's. What was Abraham and Sarah's response? God, you're taking too long. We got this. We got an idea. You know, it's kind of like an apostrophe. It means the A. They had an idea, and they decided, hey, why don't you sleep with my maidservant? And that way, we'll help you keep the promise. And we remember that whole convoluted thing where, where God had to clean up that mess and still keep his promise his way. Remember that, right? Well, here, we have to give uh, credit where credit is due in the sense of faith. That's not how Isaac responded. 20 years down the road, and Isaac displays, just like his father had faith in Yahweh, the Lord, Isaac turns to the Lord in prayer. He bows before Yahweh, the covenant maker and the covenant keeper. And it's interesting here that the name for God, because as you know, there are many names for God in the Bible, and they all have meaning, and there's all reason why an author may use one name as opposed to another. Well, here, the word, the name Yahweh, which is the personal name for God, translated in the Septuagint and in our Old Testament as the Lord, and in some translations with capital L-O-R-D, to let us know it's Yahweh. Not simply Elohim. Elohim is God Almighty, and he's certainly that. But here... It shows that personal relationship Isaac comes to, as it would be known in the New Testament especially, his heavenly father, the Lord. Now, why is it significant to see this personal relationship? I'll tell you why. It, God, there's no question the scripture teaches that God chooses in salvation. He initiates, he calls us out of darkness into light by his grace and his grace alone, and he keeps his people to the end. We would never be saved to the end if God didn't continue to work in our hearts and lives. Can I get an amen? But here's one of the things people will say when you uncover and teach this doctrine from Scripture. Oh, so God wants robots? 
He just chooses people. And he, no, as a matter of fact, it's just the opposite. God did not create us and recreate us in Christ Jesus to be robotic, fatalistic covenant partners. No, he desires real flesh and blood covenantal partners who cooperate with him willingly by faith in his kingdom's purposes. This is why in the New Testament, Jesus teaches us to pray. And what does he tell us to pray? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to cooperate with our sovereign Lord, our God, our Father. We are to pray because God is pleased when we walk with him. You know, walk with me, Lord, walk with me. In some ways, God is saying, walk with me, child. Walk with me. I have a plan. I have a purpose. And it's a glorious purpose. It's so much bigger than any of us. God's kingdom purpose. And what a joy it is to say, Lord, I am going to cooperate. The greatest way we can cooperate with God's mighty, mighty uh, plans, we mentioned it in prayer time, is to pray. And that's why I asked, when Pete was asked for prayer requests, pray that God would work in the hearts of people. Pray that God will restore marriages. Pray that God will restore um, the relationships between parents and children. Pray that God would res restore relationships with himself. See, why do I bring this up? Because God's promises never lead true believers to say, this is an old son boy, it's not only date me, it's older than me, it's my mother. I remember she had these, seven, what are they, 78 records? Real thick. But there was, que sera, sera. Some of you actually remember that? Wow. But que sera, sera, and the translation for that is, whatever will be, will be. Never will God's people have that flippant attitude. That attitude is more reflective of those who are outside of a relationship, a saving relationship with Jesus and his Father. It's much more reflective. When you're fatalistic, hey, why should I pray God's going to do whatever he wants to do? That's more reflective of a heart that hasn't met Jesus yet. I always think about the Black Crow song. Not one of my favorite bands, but I always love that this line always hit me. Um, it goes like this. She keeps a lock of hair in her pocket. She wears a cross around her neck. Yes, the hair is from a little boy. And the cross is someone she has not met. Not yet. There's so many in our culture today who have not yet met the Lord that they wear around their neck. And brothers and sisters, it's that kind of an attitude that says, well, if God chooses, why should I pray? That's petulant. It's unbelieving. As believers... We know it's actually an encouragement because God is able to do above and beyond all we ask or imagine. Because he's sovereign, I'm excited to pray. Because in that sense, prayer can do what God can do. No, Isaac, like all true children of God, saved by grace through faith in Christ, him, in his case, looking forward to Christ, in our case, Looking back to Christ, he knew the God who calls and saves by his grace alone. 
And as he walked with him by faith, when he was tested, and when circumstances all around him looked like it contradicted the promises of God, where did he take his trouble to? He took it to God in prayer. Like a living, breathing, believing son of the promise, he gets on his knees in faith and he brings his supplications and his requests to his gracious, sovereign Lord. That means grace never leads to fatalism and it never need, leads to, inactive, to an inactive faith. But it, it leads to believing prayer. To cooperate with what we know he said he would do in his word. In this case, it was promised them through a concrete child. In our case, take all the promises that God has made. Paul tells us they're all yes in Christ Jesus. So what a beautiful, when we pray, we have the privileges of praying God's promises back to him. And I'll never forget my professor, and people would get offended by this, and I think it's crazy. He would say, we bring the promises to God. He was an old Dutch guy. And then we say, do it, Lord, do it. And I remember somebody after I preached a message like this, and I used that illustration, they said, how dare us say to God, do it. And I thought, you look at the saints in the Bible, and that's how they prayed, with boldness. God, you've promised this. Do it, Lord. Have mercy, Lord. So look at the second half of verse 21, and we'll get to our last point. I love this. Simple. The Lord answered his prayer, and his, and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. God loves to give good gifts to his children. I love it. Last thing I want to show, and it's pretty heavy too. Salvation by God's sovereign, gracious choice doesn't remove our responsibility to trust and obey. Time permits me from going through all the details, but I do want to make a couple points from the last section of our text. So I'll just summarize some of it for us. But as we just read a few moments ago, right from birth, we see the, the grand plan of God beginning to be carried out. Even as we look at the character of the twins, while they're coming out of the womb. Now parents know, we know that kids come out with their own character, right out of the womb. I had two boys, and I, they had a character coming out of the womb. Even before there's any nurture, there was nature involved. They were definitely unique individuals created differently. And, the, what's that? and, and both equally depraved, correct, but different person. And we're going to see that with Esau and Jacob. It's not like good guy, bad guy. They're both depraved, which makes the point of election even stronger. But we'll get to that. But notice what happens. Esau's coming out of the womb because he is the firstborn, the older. And what does Jacob do? As coming out of the womb, he grasps his heel. And the funny name, so they name him, because he grasps his brother's heel, they name him Jacob, which means grasp the heel. But figuratively, guess what it means? Deceiver. And you will see, Jacob throughout his life was a con conniving, scheming, deceitful person. Without question. You'll see that. But then the text fast forwards past their birth right to, to when they were young men already. And we get a peek of their character as adults. And it tells us in the text very briefly that Esau was a man of the fields. He was a rugged outdoor, outdoorsman. He was a great hunter. He loved to bring home some wild game. 
But we know Jacob was a mama's boy. He liked hanging out, vacuuming, you know, helping his mom with the dishes, whatever he did. So, but, and it tells us that, and of course we see this in, in everyday life, and we see how this can complicate families. The father loved Esau. But Isaac loved Esau not for spiritual reasons, because of his belly. He loved the game that his son brought him. So he's like, you know what, I'm hanging with you. Because he'd always get this delicious game. And we also see that uh, Rebekah loved Jacob. And it would only make sense because Jacob was around the house. Constantly with his, that's why I said he was a mama's boy. So we had two, one was like retiring, liked to be indoors, kind of quiet. The other guy was a hunter. A real manly man. And it sets the scene for the dramatic incident where Jacob the younger takes advantage of his brother's weakness and gets him to sell his birthright as the firstborn. Now, what's the problem with this? Here's the problem. Well, first of all, we would say, well, isn't that what the prophecy said? The older is going to serve the younger. So what's wrong with Jacob, you know, working it a little bit? You know, we call it, it uh, shucking and jiving. You know, he's striving a little bit. He's grasping the heel again, isn't he? Trying to get what's his. He don't want to be no second fiddle. He wants to be number one. He's going to get that. And I'm sure his mom repeated that promise over and over again. And so he's going to get it. Well, I'll tell you what the problem is. It's so, as so many of us in our day, I see it again and again. We believe that the ends justify the means. Since God already promised this to me, that it doesn't matter how I get there, as long as I get there. God begs the different. Because we're going to see Jacob's life was a mess. It was many years of struggle and striving. Listen, he was a conniving, he was deceitful. So his life was taken up. Listen, you know how horrible it is to always have to look over your shoulder? Because you know something's coming? Before I knew Jesus, let's just say I didn't live an upright legal life all the time. And I remember whenever I'd hear, or see lights, I took off. Because I never knew if finally I was caught. And I'll tell you, it's not a very peaceful life. It's not a very a refreshing life. It's a life where you're constantly never knowing when the other shoe is going to drop. You with me? And that's the way Jacob lived. He continued to grasp. And the interesting thing is, here's the interesting thing. God already promised him this thing. And instead of resting and trusting and going in prayer like Isaac did, Lord, I don't see it happening this way, have mercy, he decides he's going to take matters into his own hands. But here's the important thing that we need to learn, brothers and sisters. The one true God of the universe doesn't need our faltering steps, our unnecessary scheming, and finagling to keep his promise any more than he needed Sarah and Abraham to come up with their own lame brain plan to fulfill the promise of the son. So in this text, what I want you to see is that God's will was done despite Jacob's convoluted plan of deceit and intrigue, not because of it. Look, this is what, what Jacob would end up saying toward the end of his life when he was speaking to Pharaoh. How would you like to have this as your life's epitaph? This is what Jacob says, as opposed to what his grandfather and of his life was. Listen to what Jacob says. My years have been few, 
and difficult. How would you like that? They've been few and they've been difficult. He spent so much of his life unnecessarily plotting, scheming, scheming, conniving, shucking, jiving, never being able to relax, relax because he just wouldn't submit to God fully, trust him, and leave things to him. We'll see later in Genesis, we have plenty of time to see this. Jacob didn't submit to God fully until after he was an old man. You remember, we'll see it later uh, in the text where it says Jacob wrestled with God. Well, he was an old guy at that point, so you know, it took that long. But that's the kind of God we have. We have a sovereign God. Oh, love that will not let me go. Isn't that good news? That's the good news that it's by grace. That didn't scare God off. God was like, okay, Jacob, I can outweigh you. I'm going to wait until you really trust me. And I'm going to keep working in your life until you see you don't have to do all that nonsense. You can trust and obey. One last thing I want to point out, though. Notice the text doesn't really comment much on Jacob and what he did, even though we can make those points uh, that I just made that's obviously there implicitly but you know what the text does comment on Esau's behavior maybe you noticed that in the text I heard some groans when we read it so again skipping over some of the details for time's sake we know what happens he comes in he's starving he was just hunting and he sees some red stew that lentil stew that his brother was making and he says man I want to what he basically says is listen in the original he doesn't even say stew he says give me some of that red stuff I want it now. And in the text, he actually says, so I can gulp it down. And then Jacob says, no problem. Sell me your birthright, and I'll give it to you. And, and then he says something very telling, Esau. He says, I'm about to die. What good is a birthright to me? Why is this important? When is a birthright, in, in this context, a spiritual birthright, meaning you are an heir of God and an heir with Christ? When is it the most important? When you're dying. Because you're at the jump off, jumping off point. You're about to see the holy, righteous, almighty God face to face. And at that point, you want to make sure you're an heir of the promise. You want to make sure that you lived your life by faith according to eternal values and not immediate pleasure. And unfortunately, it tells us in the text, whenever, when it talks about Esau, and so Esau what? Despised his birthright. He sold it for a bit of pottage, as it were. The writer of the Hebrews brings this up. We read it earlier. And he says this. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. So by the way, brothers and sisters, if there's bitterness in your life, get rid of it. It's poison. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau 
who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Brothers and sisters, how would we miss the grace of God? We miss the grace of God when we trade off eternal life, all the promises of God's word, for the pleasures of the flesh here and now. Esau, another uh, version, puts it this way. He was a profane man. A profane man lives for the here and the now, what he can get here and now. Does not take the long view of things and trust God and live in light of eternal principles. They rather have a moment of pleasure now because the Bible tells us sin is pleasurable for what? A season. A very brief time. But in another place, the man who does the will of God lives what? Forever. J.C. Ryle wrote this. Strong words. Because in our culture, you don't hear these kind of words too much because we become very wimpy. To, for, it's to, to our loss. But this is what J.C. Ryle writes. The loss of the soul is the heaviest loss that can befall a man. The worst and most painful of diseases, the most distressing bankruptcy of fortune, the most disastrous shipwrecks are a mere scratch of a pin compared to the loss of a soul. All other losses are bearable, or but for a short time, but the loss of a soul is forevermore. It is to lose God and Christ and heaven and glory and happiness to all eternity. It is to be cast away forever, helpless and hopeless in hell. Esau did that. Esau said, give me mine now. Literally to hell with tomorrow. Not really realizing what that means. And it's interesting... The writer of the Hebrews takes this te text and he gives it as a warning not to the world, but to who? The church. Brothers. So knowing that salvation is a free gift of God's sovereign gracious choice should never make us careless or lax in our walk of faith, but instead it should cause us to take warning from texts like this one, keeping us spiritually awake and making our calling and election sure by holding on to our confidence in Christ to the very end, cherishing our inheritance in Christ and showing it. How do we know we're elect? That's the big question, right? What we only know in this life is when we trust and we show that trust in obedience. We don't pray, God, show me that I'm elect. We trust him. We believe the gospel. And then we live like we believe it. Can I get an amen? That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, these aren't always passages we put on our calendars. They're not in our little devotions of positivity. But they are very positive because they keep us awake. They keep our eyes open so that we might be diligent, that we might continue the way we started in faith, fervently trusting you, believing your promises, shunning your warnings, 
taking your word for what it says, fearing you and shunning evil. And God, how we pray that none of us here would miss the grace of God, but indeed we would be found among those you have chosen by your grace, among those who trust and put that trust into action by obeying your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.